Christchurch, New Malden, 10th of November 2019, 11 o'clock service. Nathan Larkin speaking on a fresh take on remembrance. I thought that I'd start this morning by introducing you to someone. This is Henry. Now, Henry, sorry, uh, there we are. Henry is someone that I didn't know very much about until recently when I decided to do a bit of research on my family history. But Henry is in fact my great-grandfather, Henry Larkin. Henry was born in Belfast in 1887 to a poor working-class family. Um, He was one of ten children, and everyone in his family worked in the linen trade in one way or another. He went to school, long enough at least, to learn to read and write, but before long, he began working to help bring some money into the family. As you can probably tell from the photos, when war broke out in 1914, at the age of 27, he volunteered to join the army in just the first few months of the war. I imagine that Henry had rarely um, ventured outside of Belfast, never mind Ireland, but he soon found himself leaving home and travelling to Tynemouth in the north of England, where he was trained to use a heavy howitzer gun. It must have felt a million miles from the linen factory on the Shankill Road. He was soon deployed to France, where he was involved in the Battle of Luz and the Somme, amongst others. And I actually do have one other photo of him, which you can see here, hopefully. Um, Okay, I don't know that this is uh, working, but that's fine. This this other photo of him is much later in life. Um, It was obviously taken many years later um, outside of his home in Belfast, um, where he lived and worked. And actually, he was married, had a large family of his own, and uh, including my grandfather, of course. And he died an old man at Windsor Park Football Stadium one evening while watching Ireland play Wales. Now, that was his story, and he did come home, and he did live a full life. But unfortunately for many, for many, many young men and women, the war ended very differently. And why do I start with his story this morning? What might it have to do with a fresh take on remembrance? Well, as I said, until recently, I didn't know any of that. My dad was very young when Henry died, and he wasn't able to tell me a whole lot about his grandfather. But it wasn't until when I was researching, I stumbled across his war records, that I started to to be able to piece more and more about my great-grandfather's life and his story together. To flesh the little bits that I did know out, and to begin to connect to the man. I read about him getting measles and spending a month of the war in quarantine back in Catterick in Yorkshire. I read about him getting into trouble for taking a few days extra leave when he wasn't supposed to. But then I later realised that he was simply giving himself a short honeymoon, as this directly coincided with the dates that he got married on his marriage certificate. Bit by bit, I was feeling like I was getting to know him. But there was still one question that I couldn't quite get to grips with. Why did he volunteer? He was a simple man from what I can see. He would have had to work hard 
every day to get by in Belfast at that time. But at 27, he wouldn't have been a naive young kid looking for an adventure. At 27, uh, he, he volunteered and actually was one of the, the first round of volunteers. As soon as war was declared, he stepped forward. Now, I can't ever know for sure what his reasons were for joining up. But when I think of the war, I think of this little epitaph that's inscribed on so many gravestones from that time. And it says this, when you go home, tell them of us and say that for your tomorrow, we give our today. It's beautiful. Jesus said that there's no greater love than this, to lay down your life for someone else. So what did they go for? What did he go for? I don't know, but hope, a future, ironically, the idea of peace. These were some of the reasons that so many young men and women gave their lives. What a gift, the gift of tomorrow. But as yet another year of remembrance has come around, I find myself asking, what are we doing with that gift? I want you to imagine that my great-grandfather literally gave me a gift, a big box, all wrapped up with a bow. And I want you to imagine that it's been passed down through the years, from generation to generation, and has ended up with me. Well, I do have to wonder, when I look at the world today, the continuing threat of violence, divisions in our own country, the contempt that we can personally even have for each other at times, and the lack of peace that even our personal lives so often are characterized by. Well, I wonder, is Remembrance Day simply a day in the year that I take that still unwrapped gift, I look at it, and I think thankful thoughts before storing it away for another year? Have we really taken the yesterday that so many people sacrificed for and built a better today? What are we doing with that gift? Have we even begun to open it? You see, as we think this morning about a fresh take on remembrance, I don't want us to neglect looking back, as we always do. I want us to be reflecting and to be grateful but surely the greatest way to honor that gift is by looking forward as well and working hard to build towards a world where none of these divisions can come between us. Today, of course, we recall the millions of servicemen and women who, who gave their lives in both world wars so that we might enjoy peace today. It's a chance to give thanks to God for the freedoms that we can appreciate today because of that sacrifice but perhaps it should also be a time of reflection on our responsibility as the Christian church to think about our attitudes towards war and violence in the world today and to express our deepest longing for peace. As we gather in church here today, these thoughts of sacrifice should also bring us back to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made for us all on the battlefield of Calvary. Because the problem, of course, is that the origins of, of human conflict lie much deeper 
than any military or diplomatic solution could possibly reach. If we're to truly grab hold of our calling to be peacemakers, our challenge to love our enemies, and our commission to bring light in a dark world, then we must start by acknowledging that we can't do it on our own. No amount of diplomacy can bring the sort of peace that Jesus brings. No elected leader can even come close to guiding a nation as justly as God requires. We simply can't do it on our own. Shortly after the war began, the author H.G. Wells published a series of articles that were compiled into a book with the rather arrogant title, The War That Will End War. And that phrase soon captured the imagination of the general public in England and later in America as the war to end all wars. Perhaps this was the vision of my great-grandfather and so many others who went to that war. One last time for a better tomorrow. We can do it. It seemed impossible in the aftermath of that hideous war that humanity would ever risk such carnage again. But unfortunately, as we all know, despite the appalling waste of that war, waste of lives and death, many wars have followed. The war to end all wars did not achieve its objective. And yet, we so often fall into the trap of of progress. We look back and think, well, things are much better now. We naively think that despite all of this evidence to the contrary, that we are all basically good, that there are some bad people out there, but we're the goodies in the story. But we can't do it on our own. In the musical South Pacific, Lieutenant Cable sings, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year, and it's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. And the idea is that we are naturally peaceful people, but we are taught by others to be hostile. Supposedly, if you leave us alone and don't teach us that, that we are sweet and innocent, and other people come along and corrupt us with hateful teaching. Now, we might wish that were so, but both history and theology teach us that it's not true. Ever since Cain rose up against Abel, we have known that hostility, self-justification, and pride are what we naturally do. Ever since Lot argued with Abraham, ever since Sarah sent Hagar into the wilderness, we have known that what's native to us is not harmony, but hatred. And that means we do have to be carefully taught. We have to be carefully taught, but not that somebody has to teach us how to fight, Instead, someone has to teach us the way of peace. Someone has to teach us how to reconcile. Why can't we all just get along? Well, that's not going to happen all by itself. If we're to finally open the gift, then we need to be carefully taught the ways of peace. And we can be carefully taught how to love. And we can be carefully taught what reconciliation is all about. And the prophet Micah had a vision about this, and we heard it read before. In his mind's eye, he saw a place to which all the nations might go and asked to be taught the art of peace. I'll read it again. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. 
People will stream to it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. He will judge between many people and settle disputes between strong nations. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against other nations, nor will they train for war anymore. What a vision that is. That one day all peoples would come to God together to learn, not the way of war, but the art of peace. That to the people of God, nations might come to find out how we move from unending hostility to eternal peace. What a vision. Now Micah's prophecy beautifully expresses the dream of peace with justice among nations and among all people seeking to live according to God's ways. The prophet proclaimed his message to the nation of Judah and its capital of Jerusalem around somewhere between the years 750 and 700 BC. And it's really significant because during that critical period, the northern kingdom of Israel and the land all around them had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire. Judah stood alone, surrounded. During most of Micah's lifetime, Judah lived under the threat of Assyrian domination. But the word Micah saw is a dream of a time when God's promise of salvation, it would be a reality. And not just for Judah, not just for Israel, but for all nations. You know, sometimes when we read something like this and we hear the scope of it and this vision of peace, we might find it hard to picture. But so must they. This dream of peace and an end to conflict is all the more poignant because it was first expressed to a people who were facing serious threat of invasion by a far superior military foe. But for the Jewish people, that dream surely must have seemed totally shattered when more than 100 years later, no more than 100 years later, the, the Babylonians came and conquered Jerusalem and reduced the temple to ashes. Micah's dream of peace with justice between nations, well, it still has a very relevant appeal today. The need for it is clear. In a world that's still filled with conflict, as Israelis and Palestinians continue to kill each other, as fighting, injustice, oppression, bloodshed are still a part of the lives of millions of people in nations large and small around the globe, when violence, even in our own nation, is, seems to at times be on the, on the in, increase. I mean, even in our own capital, we look and we see violent crimes everywhere. But Micah's hope is that history will reach a climax in the reign of God that will transform existing conditions from violence and conflict to unity and peace. That seems incredibly appealing, but it does seem unattainable at times. When we think about how elusive that true peace is, even within our own lives, within our own families, within our own relationships, with people that we probably actually have a lot in common with, it's still so elusive. That dream of peace that Micah longs for, it may seem impossible. On our own, that kind of peace is impossible. 
but with God all things are possible. And until that day comes, we are to do what we can to help God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God's will is for shalom, for peace and harmonious relationships. So yes, when we look back, we must be grateful. But when we look forward, we should be excited. Because this is a vision that has clearly captured the imagination of many. Back in 1959, the Soviet Union presented to the UN a nine-foot bronze sculpture of a man beating a sword into a plowshare. On the base of that sculpture are the words that came from Micah 4. We shall beat our swords into plowshares. Now, gestures like that are a noble start. But as we can so obviously see, no human institution can bring about that sort of peace. The vision communicated in those verses can't be fulfilled apart from the grace of God. The world continues to war around us, but one day God will make things right. More recently, a lady called Esther Augsburger and her son, they decided to trust in that promise and quite literally do what they could to build on it. So they worked for two and a half years in Washington, D.C. with the police department. They used 3,000 handguns that the police had confiscated and guns that local residents had turned in in an amnesty to shape and weld them into a 16-foot-high steel plow blade. This sculpture is called Guns into Plowshares, and it sits in Judiciary Square and has sat there since 1997. As a reminder, but as a promise, It serves as a prophetic announcement of God's long-standing hope for the day when God will get God's way. A way far grander than one governed by judges, bailiffs, and parole officers. Because in God's society, gunpowder will become grain to feed the hungry. Nations will be infected with love for each other. And armies will develop amnesia and forget how to fight. We all know that the world is in a mess. It's still in a mess. People struggle to trust each other on a personal level. Injustice is rife in society. We see powerful people taking advantage of the weak and many people still resort to violence to solve their problems in their homes and on the streets. And on the other side of the world, wars continue to rage. People are exploited to satisfy our greed. And our responsibility to care for creation has never been in more jeopardy. But in the midst of this mess, I want to remind us this morning that we have been given a gift. We've been given an opportunity to make this world what it can be. And at Remembrance, I don't think there's any better time to reflect on this fact. I want, you to, I want to encourage you this morning to be thinking about peace How peaceful are you feeling today? Why? What about in your relationships within your family? Or your relationships with other people at work or school or here at church? Are they peaceful? What about relationships with people who are different than you? Do we have any of those? Perhaps we don't have a lot of influence on peace on an international scale. 
But how might you and I act and speak in ways that encourage peace with justice? We all owe a debt to those who paid for our freedom with their lives. And we honor that debt by continuing to fight for what is right on the side of freedom. But more importantly, for those of us who are in Christ, we owe a debt to him. His sacrifice on our behalf purchased our freedom. And we honor that sacrifice when we choose to use it as a platform to fight for a world where his love and his rule thrive. What sort of king is that? He's a peaceful king. One who comes in peace and one who establishes peace, not by brutal squashing of all defiance, but by the means of a transparent vulnerability which makes defiance pointless. Through him comes the reconciliation between God and mankind that will then make possible the reconciliation between mankind and itself. Paul wrote to the Christians who were struggling to enact this vision. He wrote to those in Ephesus who were struggling to be a faithful church. And this is his exhortation. I beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I wonder how different might our lives be in attitude, in speech, in behavior, if we really seek to do these things with God's help. How much bad behavior would be prevented by first asking ourselves these questions? Is this worthy of Christ? Is it humble and gentle? Does this reflect patience and tolerance? Does it embody unity and peace? Most of us would probably have avoided some painful or regretful moments in our lives or choices that we'd make if we'd asked ourselves these questions before we acted or spoke. I know I would. But this is the aim. And this is how we honor them not just by looking at the gift that they gave us and thanking them, but by opening it, building on it, working towards a world of love and peace and justice, and knowing that all the while we are honoring Jesus and working to build his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I think taking that vision of flourishing, of healing and resurrection forward I think that might be the most significant addition that we make to remembrance. For today we give thanks for, and we remember, men and women who lost their lives in the great wars, defending us against invasion, liberating Europe. But as we do so, we don't glorify war in any way. As we give thanks and, and remember, we also look forward to God's future promise of a day when warfare will be a thing of the past. So may we remember and may we give thanks. May we take a fresh view of remembrance and may we look forwards and work towards a world that is filled with the love and hope and peace that can ultimately only be found in our Lord and Saviour, 
Jesus. Amen.